Today on The Open Word with Pastor David Landry. With his death on the cross, he then gained victory over what? Sin and death. He gained the victory. But guess what? Sin's still here, right? Or is it just me that's still sinning? I, death is still here. People still die. So what's the deal? He gained the victory over it, but why is there still sin and why is there still death? Because it's not until he comes at the end and he utterly destroys all dominion, authority, and power. Then there'll be no more death. Then there'll be no more sin. Christians believe that Jesus was resurrected from the dead and will return again. Until that time when Jesus returns, death and sin will continue to reign on this earth. Therefore, life can be a battle as we face struggles that could be detrimental to our faith. Today, Pastor David teaches about the certainty we can have due to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he promised that we would also be resurrected. Sin doesn't have power over Jesus, and through Jesus, it loses its power over us. Now here's Pastor David with part two of today's message entitled, The Certainty of the Resurrection. Since these Jews had been under this Greco-Roman control for literally hundreds of years, it had become such a part of who they were, their their very essence. And in particular, that sect of Judaism that came out of uh, being a Sadducee, I'm I'm a Hellenist Jew, I'm, I'm so involved in this culture. And now suddenly the gospel message, the forgiveness of my sin starts to make sense to me, but I'm not buying the whole picture. I'm not buying the whole thing. I, I want forgiveness of my sin. I believe that I'm going to stand before God someday and be judged for my life. And I want, I want that fire escape from hell. I want that, you know, that ticket to heaven. I, I, I don't want to be judged by that. So they came in, they received what they felt was the gospel message, but they still didn't believe in the resurrection. And that's the problem that Paul is having to deal with here. And that's why he hits it so hard here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is, is literally attacking one of the core beliefs of that Greco-Roman influence. They, they believed that there was no true life after death, and they believed that there was no resurrection. So Paul's response to them first off is the testimony of Christ's resurrection. We looked at this last week. We'll touch on it real quick. Again, look what it says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there in verse three and four, as he's explaining, man, this is the gospel that I preached to you. And there in verse three, he says, I delivered you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried. And, And period, you know, if you stopped it right there, If you're in the Greek culture, you've come out of it and you want to hold on to that Greek culture a little bit, I'm fine with that. Christ died for my sins. My sins are paid for. But then he adds the fullness of it. 
he says he was buried, but then he rose again the third day, according to the scriptures, according to the scriptures. That's the fullness. That's the very core of the, of the gospel message. And beloved, if that's not true, everything else is a bust. Everything else is a bust. You take any of those factors out of there. Well, Christ didn't really die. He swooned. Okay, then payment wasn't made. Not, eh, it's not going to work. Well, Christ didn't really resurrect from the dead. The disciples stole his body and hid it. Eh, okay, doesn't work. Salvation doesn't work. The gospel does not work. All of those things have to come together. Christ lived a perfect life. Well, I don't think he really lived a perfect life. Eh, okay, then none of it works because he's an unfit sacrifice for us. All of it has to work together. In verse two, he tells them they need to hold fast to the truth by which also they were saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. How can you believe in vain? Because they were trying to believe in salvation without the resurrection. You can't. That's, that's a vain belief. That's, that's an empty belief. It's an impossible belief. So now as we get, actually, we're jumping all the way down to verse 12. That's where we kind of ended last time. From verse 12 and following on, you're going to better understand, hopefully, now the basis of, of, of Paul's argument and, again, his strong stand for the validity and for the necessity of the resurrection. Look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 12, and we'll read down to verse 19, 12 to 19. Paul writes, now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how does some among you say that there's no resurrection from the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. Beloved, if Christ isn't risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. And yes, and we have found to be false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he didn't raise up, if in fact the dead do not raise. For if the dead do not rise then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. First of all, let's do a really quick exercise. And no, I'm not giving you 10 bucks for this one, okay? Uh, Real quick exercise. In the Bible that you have, verses 12 through 19, you do your own calculations. How many times do you see the word resurrection, rise, risen, rose? Any of those? 11 is what I've got, yeah. In the King James, New King James, and the NIV, it's 11, okay? That's counting resurrection, risen, raise, rose, and rise. Do you think Paul wants to get this idea across to you? How important the resurrection is? It's got to be there. And the fact is, again, you cannot be a Christian, Paul is saying, without believing in the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, there's no true Christianity. Without the resurrection, there's literally no forgiveness of sin. And as Paul lays this case out very plainly, he says that without the resurrection, verse 13 Christ isn't risen. Verse 14, our preaching is empty. Verse 14, your faith is empty. Verse 15, we're found false witnesses of God. Verse 17, your faith is futile. Verse 17, you're still in your sins. Verse 18, those who have fallen asleep in Christ, they perished. The word there that he uses means utterly destroyed. They're wiped out. They're no more. Verse 19, we of all men are most pitiable. Yeah, the resurrection 
absolutely necessary for Christianity. The resurrection is the power of God which clearly places the truths of Christianity on a level far above any of man's religion or philosophy. It is the supernatural work of God and outside of the understanding or the logic or the power of any man or humanity in itself. Who can raise the dead? Only God. That's nothing that you do by incantations or magic potions or any other thing. No, that is a supernatural work of the power of God to raise someone from the dead. So now, after making this case for the validity of the resurrection, Paul now goes on to explain these various aspects of the resurrection, beginning there in verse 20. He says, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own turn, Christ the first fruits, and then when he comes, those who belong to him. So first of all, we need to understand what resurrection is need to under, uh, understand, it's not the, the spirit or the soul of an individual simply coming up and moving about freely without any kind of encumbrance of, of, of a physical body. That's not resurrection, okay? Resurrection is a new body, completely different in makeup and yet similar in many aspects. We sometimes get the question, well, am I going to recognize my loved ones when I get to heaven? The answer to that question is yes, you will, because you'll know all things just as you're known now. But, you know, there is a difference in the resurrected body. How do I know that? According to God's scripture. Again, the the word shows us. Think about the resurrected Christ. He had a physical body. The resurrected Christ had a physical body, and even as he told the disciples, I'm not a ghost. A ghost doesn't have flesh and bones. There in Luke chapter 24. It was different than what he had prior to his death and burial, but there were still similarities. Remember when he spoke to Mary there in the Garden of Galilee, John chapter 20. Remember, he, Mary thought that he was a gardener. She was sitting there speaking to him. He, she didn't really recognize him until he spoke her name. And some people say, well, that's because she was overwhelmed with grief. Okay, we'll give that to Mary. But I think it's much more than that because we also see that he walked and he talked and he, and he taught two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus. For quite a while, they journeyed along there. They said, hey, we're, you know, why don't you stay and have dinner with us? And so they sat down. They still didn't recognize who he was until what time? He blessed the food. And then all of a sudden they realized, whoa, that's Jesus. And boom, he was gone. So whoa, he's here and he's not there. He's sort of recognizable, but he's not real recognizable. There's a difference, but there's a similarity there. Remember when the disciples gathered in the upper room, they were scared to death. They had the doors locked, the windows locked. They, they had chairs against the doors, you know, you know the whole thing. They, they were afraid of the Romans and the Jews to come in. And then suddenly what? The Lord appeared among them. And they were afraid because they didn't know what it was. And that's when Jesus said, no, it's me. It's me, man, you know, right here. I got flesh, I got bones. He, again, showed him his hands and his side. Did the same thing to Thomas a little bit later. Similarities, some sort of recognition, but different, different. 
Remember along the, sh- the seashore, the disciples were out fishing, and he calls out, hey, you guys caught anything? And suddenly it was John recognized, maybe he recognized his voice or something. He says, you know, that's the Lord. And then Peter jumps out of the boat again. I love the guy. He's always jumping out of the boat. I think more of us need to jump out of the boat, okay? There was, there was a difference, but yet there was a similarity. They, they ate with him. They walked with him. They spoke with him. He had a full and complete physical body and presence. He wasn't a spirit. Now, you need to understand, though, that there had been others who had returned from the dead. We look in the Old Testament, people risen from the dead. The prophets would, again, call them up from the dead. Uh, uh, Somebody was thrown on the bones of Elijah. They, They came back to life. We see in the New Testament, Jesus raising people from the dead. Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That'd be a bummer to me. Okay, if I'm dead four days, Lord, leave me dead. Okay, uh, I want to stay dead I because you know what? When they're raised from the dead, it's different than resurrection. Because when you're raised from the dead, guess what? You got to die again. So figure that out. I've been gone four days. Now I'm raised up, raised, raising up again. Now I'm going to die again later on. I'm going to go through this whole process. When you're resurrected, you do not die again. No, you're resurrected for all of eternity. So we see that Old Testament, New Testament. We see the Gospels. We see it in the Acts. This act of physical life coming back, but then only to die again. Totally different. And resurrection is completely different. As Paul tells us later in this passage, that this corruptible, this decaying one, we put on then incorruption. That's what the resurrection does. It it gives us that incorruptible in our lives. This mortal putting on now immortality. I'll never die again when I'm resurrected. This is why Paul tells us here in verse 20 and in verse 23 that Christ is what? The first fruits. He's the first fruits. He's the first one to be resurrected, although there's going to be others that follow after him. Paul revisits this whole idea here when he says, For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. Paul speaks about that at length over in Romans chapter 5. He brings to us the concept, the, the, the understanding of what is called original sin. Original sin. And people ask the question sometimes, am I a sinner because I sin or do I sin because I'm a sinner? And the answer to that is yes, okay, because of both. You're a sinner because you sin and you sin because you are a sinner. We, we are born under sin. It's called, the, the, not, not to get too heavy on you here, but it's called the federal headship, okay? Adam is the federal, he is the representation of all humanity. And when Adam fell, all humanity fell with him. Another way of looking at it is the natural headship that genetically through Adam, sin entered into the world. Both of them are correct. As a matter of fact, uh, Matthew Slick, a guy that I've read for years and years, he's got a great website called C-A-R-M, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry. Great place. If you've got questions, you can go on that website. He's got a lot of it covered. Just a really, really sharp guy. He explains this concept pretty 
quickly and simply. He talks about federal headship in a broad sense is a position that the male represents all of his descendants, represents them, okay? Just like he is the head of this house, a patriarchal type of a system. He represents, much like, again, our the president of the United States represents the nation, okay? Matthew goes on, he says, in the case of Adam, he was the federal head of mankind in that he represented mankind in the fall. We were in him, in his seed. We all fell, we fell in him. Likewise, Jesus is our federal head in salvation. He represented those of faith or his people on the cross, just as 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, for as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. Federal headship, the authority to represent descendants, it's taught all throughout scripture. Adam was in authority when he fell. That is, we fell in Adam when he fell. And the only way for this to be possible is for him to have represented us just as Jesus represented us on the cross so that we live in Christ. To deny one is to deny the other. To deny that that Christ did not, when he took my sin on the cross, I accept that absolutely. Then I also have to accept the fact that when Adam sinned, his sin also became my sin. Okay, both of them work together. There's another, that, that other parallel understanding, what I call the, the natural headship. Hodge in his outlines of theology talks about this real quick. Again, the federal headship of Adam presupposes or rests upon this idea of natural headship. He was our natural head, actually before he was our federal head. He was doubtless made our federal representative because he was our natural progenitor and was so conditioned that his agency must affect our destinies. And because our very nature was on trial, typically, if not essentially, in him. Whatever, therefore, of virtue in this explanation, the natural headship of Adam may be supposed to contain the federal theory retains. Anyway, skip that because even as I'm reading it, I'm seeing glassy-eyed in front of me. The natural head, again, speaking of just genetically through Adam, also as a representative through Adam. So we've sinned on both sides. Both of them are correct. Both of them are biblical. That's why we read in verse 21, for since death came through a man, Adam, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man, through Christ. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So for you and I, this being made alive is the resurrection of our physical bodies with Christ as our first, our first fruit. So in verse 23, it says, but each in his own turn, Christ, the first fruits, and then when he comes, and I love this, Paul brings out the fact, man, when he comes, those who belong to him, that's when the resurrection takes place. Paul tells us clearly that the resurrection of the believers will not happen until the Lord's return, when he comes. Then he goes on to speak of these end times, beginning in verse 24. He actually takes a slight detour here in in speaking about the resurrection to speak about the end of all things. Verse 24, he says, then the end will come. When when Christ returns and and we're resurrected, then the end is gonna come. When he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after 
He has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now you need to realize that when Christ was on the cross and he declared it is finished, there is a twofold understanding to that. The work of his for the Father, doing the Father's will, was finished. I've lived my life. But the other thing of that finish is the victory is finished, the battle, because with his death on the cross, he then gained victory over what? Sin and death. He gained the victory. But guess what? Sin's still here, right? Or is it just me that's still sinning? Death is still here. People still die. So what's the deal? He gained the victory over it, but why is there still sin and why is there still death? Because it's not until he comes at the end and he utterly destroys all dominion, authority, and power. Then there'll be no more death. Then there'll be no more sin at that point in time. He already stands. He is in power over every dominion, every authority, and every power but they're still active in the world today. And it's not gonna be until the end when he utterly destroys these dominions, these authorities, and the powers that, again, those will not be affecting our lives. I wasn't gonna say it, and, but yet I feel really led to say it. One of the things that really bothers me right now in some circles of Christianity is when some of my brothers and sisters, in all sincerity, and I believe that they're being sincerity, they pray and say, you know, we're going to take dominion over Satan or we're going to take dominion over the spirit of whatever it is in the city or this county or in this school or we're, we're going to take dominion of that and we claim that right here. You know what? I don't see that anywhere in Scripture. And you know what? I don't see where it's ever worked. People say we're going to claim dominion over this authority in our city. Guess what? The next day the city's still sinning. Guess what? The next day there's still drug addicts on the street. No, the victory is there in Christ. But that dominion, that authority, that power is still going to be working in this fallen world until at the very end when Christ comes and at that end, man, that's when Satan's going to be bound. You, you're not going to bind Satan. I'm sorry, you're not going to bind Satan. I hear people pray that all the time. And I just shake my head and think, let me know how that works out for you, okay? Tell me how that works out for you. Okay, let me move on. We continue to deal with these dominions, these authorities, these powers until Jesus comes. It's a part of the battle that every one of us are currently involved in. There will come a time, though, when death will no longer be a factor, when these dominions, these authorities, these powers of the dark one will no longer be the, the factor. But, beloved, that's after the resurrection. That's when this corruptible can't be corrupted anymore because I've, I've laid off this body of sin and death. I've I've gained a new body. I've gained eternity now working within me. This all takes place when Jesus returns. Then he puts all his enemies under his feet. Verse 27, for he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it's evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Speaking of God, okay? Because God had the power to give Jesus the authority and the power to put all things under his feet. Verse 28, Now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also, catch this, the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him. Who put all things under him? God the Father. That God may be all in all. 
The book of 1 Corinthians is probably best known for its passage on love in chapter 13. You've probably heard these verses spoken at weddings, but these words on the character of love can also be applied to our relationship with God. God loved us so much that He gave His Son to stand in our place of judgment. Jesus came to this earth to live a perfect life and then took every sin of every human being upon Himself, dying so that we didn't have to. That incredible love is available to you right now. If you want to know more about Jesus and the life of forgiveness and love He has waiting for you, please call us at 520-836-9676. You can also send us an email by visiting our website at theopenword.com. As a next step, we encourage you to find a solid Bible-based church to help you grow in your walk with God. With a special invitation regarding that, here's Pastor David. Hey, I hope that today's message has encouraged you in your faith and given you a hunger to learn more about God. If you're in the Casa Grande area and are looking for a church to attend, I'd be honored to have you join us here at Calvary Chapel of Casa Grande. You can find directions and service times by visiting theopenword.com and following the links to our church homepage. We welcome you to be a part of our time of worshiping our Creator and studying the words of the Bible verse by verse, growing closer to Him each week. Thanks, Pastor David. We are so glad you joined us today here on The Open Word. Pastor David will return to share more from the book of 1 Corinthians right here on The Open Word.